if you've been involved in electronic music over the last 20 or so years, the name Trevor Jackson is one that you can't escape. I know for myself, Trevor has been a guiding light, an inspiration, and a friend, God, for a long time. He is refreshingly opinionated, <laughs> at times controversial, but really it's just because he's incredibly knowledgeable and really passionate. I guess the easiest way to put it is he cares too much about music to give a shit what other people think. So it was a pleasure to sit down and talk to him. Sadly, I talk a little bit too much in this episode. But that's because I was excited. And uh, we cover a lot of amazing uh, topics. We talk about pissing people off, our shared hatred of indie music, the pressure of DJing the main room. We talk about loving the underdogs, Neville Brody, and uh, the history of early graphic design, clearing dance floors with Andrew Weatherall, being a label boss. Of course, he ran output recordings for a long time. And we even argue about some stuff, but that's what friends do, especially friends with opinions. This episode has some of the best music of any of the episodes. I don't I'm not just saying that because I never lie, but there's everything from the KLF to the cult. Trevor has an encyclopedic knowledge of music. And uh, I know he gets a bit of a rap for being a... He can be... (laughs) Whatever, he's got his opinions. But I actually found this episode and talking to Trevor, I found it very optimistic, um, very encouraging, and an absolute pleasure. More than anything else, Trevor is just a complete music lover. So here you go. This is the last party on earth with Trevor Jackson. Last party on earth. You can start recording, by the way. Well, I hope you realize I actually got a microphone specially for you for this. Wow. That's good. <laughs> yeah, man. I take this shit seriously, you know. I was actually, I've been really looking forward to talking to you. You say that, you say that to everyone, man. Yeah, I do. But I've, I've listened to all of them. You say that to everyone. <laughs> that wasn't even me. Like I just have a, I just punched that in. I've actually been really looking forward to just talking to you, picking your brain and hearing what you're up to and hearing your thoughts and everything. Cause I don't know about you. I have so much time to think lately. So many theories, so much going on. And I don't know, just a chance to talk to someone like you. Uh, I'm excited to listen to what you have to say. Ah, well, I'm excited too. But I've been, man, I've had no, no time off. I've been busy as hell during this. Seriously, I haven't had any, I haven't had any headspace at all, yeah. Well, that's good. I mean, that means, well, I think that's, that's part of the life you set up uh, for yourself. Yeah, completely. Which is, yeah, no, totally, you yeah, know, you completely. never, you were one of the only people uh, going back a long time who, uh, I, I guess, consciously or unconsciously, you'd never really- Hated did, being a DJ. Ex- there you go. That's- <laughs> There were, there, but there was so, I swear, Trevor, there was so many times where I was like, you know, Malaga airport at like whatever in between flights, hadn't slept in days. And you had told me once years ago, I think you just looked at me, you've been like, Tiga, I don't know how you do it or why you do it. And your words, it was like Obi, uh, one Kenobi, like echoing in my head, like, why do you do it? Why do you do it? So anyway, you were ahead of the curve in terms of not caring or hating or not depending on shows so you just cut man you just cut out then sorry i missed that i don't know what yeah let me check yeah go on sorry what was that uh i don't know how much of that did you miss did you miss the obi-wan Kenobi? i missed just a bit i missed just the beginning bit and you said something about just literally the last line you said i I couldn't hear the question well i was just saying that you were ahead of the curve in terms of not depending on shows and not worshiping shows as the center of your universe i mean i don't i the truth is i really love playing music right 
I love DJing, but just purely all the stuff goes along with it. It just didn't weigh out. If I had to weigh out the pros and cons, it just was. You know, you know, you know what it's like in mm. terms of the amount of average gigs you have to good gigs. And I was getting to a situation where I mean, it's a bit longer conversation we have later probably. But um, you know, joking aside, I adore DJing, but all the stuff around it just kind of basically dragged me down too much. I think. Yeah. Well, this this uh, forced break uh, did something that I think myself and a lot of other people. Well, you're you know you had the whatever you knew yourself well enough to hit the brakes of your own accord. For a lot of us, I guess it had to be forced to stop. I know for myself, it was really really uh, very hard on me and bringing me down. No, it must be super. I mean, I, you know, I think that the truth is that I've always been you know same again joking aside. I've always made little digs at DJ culture, etc. But I've been very lucky to do many different things. So I don't have to rely upon it. So if I got to a situation, that, I mean, that's the thing, you know me, hopefully you won't edit this interview at all. But I say what I want, because I don't have anything to I mean, I feel I'm at a point in my life, I'm at an age, I've done so many things. And also in terms of the DJing thing, if I end up pissing off a club or a promoter, it doesn't matter no. you know, to me, because I can just I can just go and do something else. And I know a lot of other people aren't as fortunate. And they have to, unfortunately, play the game to some extent, because otherwise, I just won't get gigs and you know so i suppose i'm fairly fortunate in that respect you know yeah well it's fortunate it's also the the person you are it took a long time to you know that's because of who you are that's what i love that's one of the things i love about you i think really at the end of the day the ability to be able to walk away from something or the the luxury of not caring is number one i mean that's really what for you and for me i think that's what we probably grew up wanting more than anything else the ability to not care who you piss off. It's a giant conversation now because things seem to have changed so much in terms of people's relation to who they piss off and how they piss off and how public it is, etc. That's. I mean, the difference between, I mean, I think the difference between you and me is people like you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean the, 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 fact, the, the fact is, I think our mentality might be the same, but I've, I've kind of, you know, I'm used to people thinking I'm difficult. But, you know, I'm difficult because I don't let people fuck me around. Yeah. You know, you speak to people that I work with. I'd, I'd like to think that most people I work with actually are like, hey, Trevor's not a good guy. He, you know, he takes everything he does very seriously. And the fact is, it's just, it's more like that. I think if, it, 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 unfortunately, you can't, you know, I learned a long time ago that if you're too nice, people just take advantage of it, sadly. So I think, I mean, that's burying my soul a little bit too much, but... No, no, that's, um, I, that's, I like to get into that yeah, stuff. I, I, I really, I really feel that, um, you know, there's too many people that take it, especially at the moment, take, well, t- you know, give them an inch, they'll take a million miles from you. So I think it's really important to, you know, I'd be professional and uh, I, I, you know, I just speak my mind. I, I don't think I'm, I'm ever, well, it's just like a therapy, doesn't it? It always um, gets like that. But, we just got to it. But, but we just I, got to it really quick, but it too always. Far. But but that. But <laughs> truthfully, I think I'm. I don't think I'm ever malicious, or, or you know. But I'm definitely forthright and speak my mind and don't hold back on saying the truth, which I think is is very very important. But again, I say I've got the luxury of not having to care about who I piss off in some way. So, so. you're preaching to the choir because that's the thing I value more than anything is just people who say what they actually think. So man, so so man, your last album then. Yeah, no, no, go for it. I, I don't know. I, 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 <laughs> no, I'm I'm joking, told, yeah, but you know, the other thing is this, okay, now we might be getting kind of shrinky really quick, but yeah. you know, the thing is it's, it's saying what you mean and it's also actually having an opinion. 
I'm starting to wonder who really has an opinion now. Something you actually believe in, right or wrong, you know? Like, oh, I love, this record cover is amazing, or this record cover is crap. And, and just knowing it, even if it doesn't matter who else agrees with you, knowing it in yourself and saying it, I think that it's, that's so part of who you are and who I am. It's like, it's like you have a reaction. And not only are you not afraid to share it, but it's a real reaction that you have. But this is it. The, the fact is, right, what I say is a real, you know, I don't say what I say to be controversial or to get attention because actually attention is the one thing, it's something I hate more than anything in a weird way. But I say it because it's just honest and I feel it. I think, you know, for me, it's, it's interesting, because right? my, my partner, my girlfriend, she's Australian, right? And she's mellow as hell. My condolences. Right? <laughs> well, to her or to me? <laughs> to both of you. <laughs> no, no, no. But she, she, and, and, well, to um, her because of you. And to you, because she's Australian. No, no, I don't. Hey, man, Australia's great. I'm joking. Don't, don't look Australia. But um, it's interesting because you grew up in very different, very different households. Like my household, Friday night dinner, we'd be around the table arguing, discussing, debating to the early hours of the morning about everything. My mum going, oh, please stop it. I can't deal with it anymore. But me and my dad and my brother, we'd just be arguing. But we'd love, mm. you know, that's part of what I grew up with, debate. You know, I, yeah, yeah, I, and, me too. And, and my, you know, and, th- and my girlfriend's very different. And I think that it's interesting. I, you know, I think that scares some people. You know, I think that obviously, with you know, in a social media age, you know, it's a different thing altogether. Because in certain households um, where it's very verbal, you also your your tolerance goes way up. Your tolerance for being offended, uh, the speed at which you learn to get over shit. Uh, it, you just you just get a little bit of a thicker skin. There's a lot more. It does come off as a shock to people who have not grown up that way or are not used to it. Like right now with the whole social media thing, I'm always like, so often I'm just like, what's the big deal? Like you can be offended without... Anyway, I don't even want to go there. No, that's... A, a bit, uh, yeah, I, 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 I... We should... I agree, but I, th- I think the thing is that get, I know, Wait, this is I know a, this is a slippery rap- slope. We're eight minutes. No, in. no, 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 no. But no, but I think. But I, I, what I was going to say is, for me, what interests me, and it'll probably come up later in the conversation, is I like getting under people's skin to find out what really makes them tick. Mm. Right. I like to to me integrity and authenticity are the most important things. I think authenticity is very broad, right? A very broad term but that those are the things that really interest me and the reasons why people do things in everything they do i've kind of learned now that the results of things don't bother me as much as the intention behind things and when i debate and discuss and say things i feel often through a response because i want to really know how people feel you know and that's kind of maybe i should learn to do it in a far more um less confrontational way perhaps i don't know but that's the way i go about things and and i think just going back quickly talking about you know growing up in a family like that also i grew up in the 80s reading the enemy and magazines like that where journalists would rip the shit out of everything yeah they wouldn't hold back yeah you know like i remember prefab sprout one of my favorite bands there was a review of prefab sprout i should have pulled it up and just but it demolished them yeah. it was like this is a national music paper weekly newspaper the biggest one that sold millions and it literally said, like, this band are absolute shite. Yeah. What a waste of 
what a waste of air, what a waste of melody. You know, it destroyed them, right? But this is what I grew up with seeing. This is, and it, but creatively written, and I kind of thrived on that. I, I look at interviews with John, my, my favorite interviews, things like John Lydon. I, I love people Me like too, that, me too. You know? But also too, it's also in the, it's also in the DNA of hip hop, which is, the, the, doubt, which, yeah. which is the thing that everything has to be battle tested. If you say something stupid, you're going to, you're going to get cut down, you know, like everything has to, you have to be able to defend your positions. And there's that, uh, the culture of, it doesn't necessarily mean, have to be in a mean way, but the culture of attacking the things you even love to find the weaknesses is really important. Yeah. I don't know what, yeah. I don't know what happened to that. So I guess we can start off with the authenticity thing. So your name came up a lot in a few, well, quite a few, you were like the all-star, the comp, the Zelig in all my podcasts. Like I'm like, where's, I'm like, where's, I'm like, you where's are, Wal- you're the where's Waldo of my podcast series. Yeah. <laughs> well, you came up with talking when I was talking to Kieran Fortet, yeah, you were important in his whole life and signing his records and stuff. You came up when I talked to Richard Russell. I actually had no idea you guys had that that yeah, shared history. Yeah. It's pretty cool. Yeah, I've got connections with most of the people you've interviewed in some weird way. I've had you know, strong connections with in some way. Well, one thing that I think is a common thread with a lot of us, or the people I talk to, is and it's been coming up a lot, is that idea of authenticity. Somewhere along the line, your value system authenticity became the currency that you really value. You know, and I think a lot of us of a, I don't know if it's a generational thing, whatever, but do you think that's still the currency? I mean, do you think that people still care about the same thing? No, the currency now is popularity. Point blank. That's all that matters. It's so different from everything I was, I learned and I was taught and, and the more I think about it, you know, because it, 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 you know, it, it bothers me a lot, but it's kind of like, you know, it's, it's very hard now being an artist of any, you know, in any creative, in, in any industry, right? And being involved in, we have, sorry to talk about the social media thing again, and, and you know, seeing, no, but it's important because I think the thing is, all the people that I loved and adored, and in fact, so many things, be it in film or in music or books or art, I was never into the people that were famous. Mm. I was always into those weirdos that no one else liked, right? Yeah. And so I have to con- continue to remind myself of that. Those people, the undiscovered people, the the underdogs, they're the people that have inspired me. And that's all I've want. You know, personally for me, I'm happy to be one of those people. But the way that things are set up now, it's just about being as popular as possible. And that goes into you know saying you know saying not not calling people out because you don't want to people not to like you or not to give you a gig or not to you know I, generally I think unfortunately popularity is the currency. Do you ever think why you kind of always like the underdogs? Um, like what does it say about you, especially when you're a kid? Is it are you really really looking for something? original to define yourself yeah, different yeah. from every, I guess what I'm saying is 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 it how badly do you want to be different compared to the kid oh, who is ready a, I to huge, I think that's a massive I mean for me I you know I grew up in northwest London Jewish community most of my friends were either estate agents or wanted to be accountants or 
working close. You know, it, it, it was boring as fuck. You can say you can say you can cars. say the word schmata on the show. Schmata, yeah, no, no, not much. When we, my, my grand, my papa was in the schmata business, but that that wasn't. The, but it, I grew up in this part, you know, middle class Jewish suburbia, yeah, and I didn't want anything to do with that. Hmm. So I did everything I could to reject it and everything I could to do be, to be different. And I think a part of it was to do with my youth and wanting to escape that. And I luckily hooked up with a group of friends, old people older than me, around when I was about 13. I mean, I worked in a record shop with Richard Russell, but um, a bit later, older guys that came into the shop and then we started going clubbing when I was like 14, right? So I got sucked into that. And I think that feeling different, I think that's a really powerful thing. I mean, a lot of people want to, I mean, you know, I, I'm, I'm re, I, I spoke about it previously in the past and I think things have changed a lot now. Being different is actually kind of cool. Being different is empowering again, but there was a long period of time when people didn't want to be different, right? But I think being different is empowering. So I think that's part of the reason I certainly sought out different things. And then moving forward, when it came to making music and I started making hip hop, the art of digging for breaks and the art, that, that art, forces you to search for things that other people don't have goes back to the comment you made at the beginning about hip-hop it makes you being competitive and so i was very very consciously at the beginning when i first started sampling was trying to find things that other people weren't sampling and that took me on a a crazy deep Mm. mission into the unknown and that's probably a huge part of it as well you know I always wanted to be different and I always kind of was. And it's just, you don't know what starts it. Are you a weird kid because you want to be or do you want to be different or whatever it is. But for me, the whole, the core contradiction is I always really, really wanted to be different, but I also wanted to be popular. Oh, that's, yeah, that's Exactly. It ended up being an obsession with something like the KLF. So this holy grail of things that are inherently weird and offbeat and different and yet somehow crack the code to popularity. That's always been the dream. But the thing is, that the big difference between you and me, <laughs> apart, from the, apart from the fact that people like you, is that um, you like being a performer. You like being in front of people. You like people seeing you. Mm. And, I think that, you know, and I think that's the difference between you and me because that doesn't interest me. I like people to know my work. I like people to hear what or see what I do. But actually, I, I like it. I don't love it. I'm not. A, I'm yeah, not a come, natural. You've done, you've done. No, it's not. No, but you come on. You get. In, you get on the stage in front of people and DJ in front of thousands of people. You play gigs. In, yeah. It's not about. But you do it. Yeah. Whereas for me, that is like, I'm not interested. Yeah. In that at all. Hmm. And, that, and and so I think that's kind of. Yeah, you know, I, I, you know, that's the difference between us. But I think that plays a big. And when, when you're talking about something like KLF, which we can talk about a bit later, there's a huge part of that is to do with intelligence. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, that that I talk about this all the time now. Like I was thinking, in the world today, where there's so much money, 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 numbers, 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 right? Like everywhere you look, there's you're, you're tempted with this idea that you're supposed to be incredibly rich and or whatever it is, you know, it's just everywhere on an exponential curve. And I, and I sometimes to soothe my own, uh, whatever it is, weaknesses, I tell myself what I always wanted more than anything is intelligence. You know, it, it's always been like, who's the smart person in the room? Yeah, maybe I'm not even sure intelligence is the right word, but it's kind of, Whatever, but but I think that's part of it. And all the bands, you know, the bands that I love, which were subversive and big, be that Soft Cell and you know, ABC and Yellow and bands, you know, 
those artists, for me, they cracked subversiveness and popularity by doing it in a really clever, intelligent way, you know, and I think that's... That's exactly what it is. It's like, it's like cracking a code. It's like, it's like a puzzle. But I don't, that, that's, that's not my code, but you've managed to do it very well, young man. <laughs> um, so I want, okay, so a couple of questions. So first of all, is there a particular person who you remember first seeing, an artist, a DJ, whatever, which gave you the idea of like, oh, I want to be like that, or, or that could be me? What, musically? Well, it could be music. It could be design. It was, you know, an early case of someone would give you like, okay, I, that could be my life. I want, I want that. For mine, it was probably Neville Brody designing the Face magazine. Mm. As a kid, I was really into Neville's work. And so someone like that, and he, it was well, there's two people. There was Neville Brody and there was Mariscal, Javier Mariscal, and also Philip Stark. So these people in the design world who kind of had personality, but they were also brilliant designers as well and I think having personality is different than being popular you know I think I've always interested I, I'm not interested in bland people but I like people that have personality and I think all Neville and Mariscal and, and Philip Stark different people working in you know Philip Stark obviously was more product design but that for me I was like wow how old were you when you first knew that, like for example even to know the name of a graphic designer I was probably, I mean, this is because I was working in the record shop from the age of maybe 13, 14. So I was learning about graphic design from the back of record covers. Um, so that's probably 14, 15. Did you want to be a designer? I knew, I knew from the off. That's all I wanted. I wanted to design record covers. I knew that's wow. what I wanted to do. Yeah. See, that, that's pretty cool. I, I don't know too many people that that, I mean, that's something I want to talk to you a lot about. I spent way more time on graphic design not even really by choice than I did on music. And for years and years and years, I was like a wannabe musician who was stuck making. I didn't know. I had no idea. Well, all the, it wasn't, I had a partner um, and it started and we did, you know, whatever was the first hundred turbo records. And we did all the flyers for our raves. His name was Benno and he ended up, uh, went on to work uh, with American apparel. And anyway, he was the real genius and I was kind of, no, the turbo branding was brilliant from the off. It was great. First record cover you remember in your life that made an impression on you? Oh, on that, it was a New Order Confusion. You know, the one with the embossed tights. That's got like, it, it, Peter Savile did it. It's amazing. That was the one. That Lilac? Great? It's great. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. it's like that, binary, that binary kind of chopped up letters? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. It was, and that was the first time I think, one of the, I think, as I said, it was never Brody's work with the face, but, I mean, he was doing record covers at the time, but, they didn't stand out to me as much, but I think, no, but yeah, that, that particular um, confusion scene was the first time I thought, wow, you can do something really, really interesting with record covers. And it, it took me on a journey because up to that point I was kind of into, I was more into comic books and animation and video games and stuff. And then I saw that and I was like, I mean, it was a kind of like, you know, a bitmap font. So it's kind of connected to that kind of culture, but, um, yeah, that was the one that really, I mean, it still amazes me, that cover, but that, that was the one that really set, sparked me off and set, got me excited, yeah. So at the point, so when you were buying copies of The Face and when you were kind of getting into the graphic and the visual, at that point, had you already started, had you already DJed or had you considered making music? Like what's the chronology, what's the order between the disciplines? Um, let me think, I was, so I was at college studying graphics till I was at, about 18 and up to that point I was, I was clubbing from the age of 14 
but I never imagined myself being a DJ. But then I think I used to DJ at people's house parties because I remember, yeah, I, the record shop that Richard and I used to work at, I used to, st basically, we could never get imports, um, American imports and club stuff in there. So I used to steal record tokens and, and go to the, the import shops in the, in, in the West End and, and buy records. And I, and, and I remember people used to ask me to DJ at house parties and stuff. So I was kind of, but it was purely fun. It was like I'd play once every two months at someone's house and stuff, you know. And was your, did it start with hip hop? Was that your beginning? Was that your specialty or no? It was just, it was everything. No, I mean, I, I'm thinking because I grew up listening to, I suppose I'm fortunate because I heard that, I, I heard that transition from, hip-hop, electro, neuromantic stuff, all those, the connection between those things. And then when, you know, so I, I think I, when I DJed, I'm pretty sure I did. I think I used to play hip-hop. I wouldn't, in fact, I didn't start really playing the music, you know, the stuff from the 80s that I liked until the early, late, late 1990s, early 2000s. I didn't revisit that stuff. So you're right, it was pretty much hip-hop I was playing in the late 80s, yeah, like early 90s, yeah. And so when you started clubbing, that's pre-Acid House, right? No, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm, let me just think. Okay. Let's, let's get the, let's get the numbers right. I, I'm trying, no. I, <laughs> yeah, because I was, I was clubbing in the early mid-80s. In the 1940s. And I was going, <laughs> and, and I was, and I'd go, I was listening to, you know, I'd go to this club, the Camden Palace, which, used to, which became Coco, and I'd go three, well, two or three times a week to this club and listen to Colin Favor and Eddie Richards play, right? And that club, the sound system was huge and the light, lighting rig was just incredible. It was, really was a complete audiovisual assault, right? It was like watching Close Encounters because the lighting rig was amazing. And you'd hear these huge, you know, I remember hearing, I still vividly remember hearing things like Africa Bambanta, Renegades of Funk and hearing the order confusion on this massive sound system in this club and that just I was transfixed so I go there a few times a week but but so I'm trying to think yeah the first clubs I went to were more kind of new wave into electro hip-hop and then the warehouse party scene started with cold cut and family Funk, cold cut family function soul to soul those guys and then and then kind of early house came in so around that period so you know 87 88 I started designing records professionally I was going to clubs and I was dabbling with a little bit of DJing. First of all, like oh, when I talk to Richard or even Benji, like when you talk to people that have grown up in London a certain age and it's just, it's just incredible how many things you got to experience like that, like that, like the, whatever that, those, those eras back to back to back. It's just like the epicenter. Yeah, of, I, it's I just incredible. Yeah. The really. fact that literally, you know, like we said, like neuromantic music, electro, hip hop, drum and bass, through to, you know, I, I heard it all, everything emerging, house, acid, everything, I was there. Like I said, like, where's Wally? It's, it, was, it was mental, but it, it um, and the thing was, I was into all of it. So one night, you know, a bit later on, one night I'd go to Full Cycle here in drum and bass at the end, and the next night I'd go to a funk night, or I'd go to a hip-hop night, or I'd go to a house, you know, everything was, it, it was incredible that time. I can't, even start to tell you how mad it was and the fact I was literally working in there so I like the first record seeds I did professionally were for Champion Records and I don't know if you knew Champion yeah yeah of course of course and so Champ I left college with a portfolio 
and I went to Champion Records because they were started putting out some. They, they were doing hip hop stuff. In fact, Paul Oakenfeld, I think, was working at Champion. Um, they did Todd Terry Records, right? Well, that's it. Because pretty much, I went there and I said to this guy Mel, he said, "Look, I'm living at home with my mum and dad. If you want me to do some records, these I'll do the first couple of things for free. If you like them, then I, then I'll start charging you." He goes, "All right, let's do it." And the first thing I did was like Todd Terry. Mm. Swan, Swan Lake. Well, one of the first things I did was Swan Lake. And then I did Royal House. Can you feel it? And, you know, I was, it was insane. I was literally going to clubs hearing these records and then designing the record cover for it that night coming home. It's mental. That's super. It's amazing. No, it's amazing. I literally remember being in, in, in my, I had a little design studio. When, this is when I'm about 18, 18, 19. A little design studio down the road in Clerkenwell. And I was in the, this little dark room I used to have. I used to have this thing called a PNT camera, which was like a photo-mechanical photo transfer camera, pre-computers to make all my black and white artworks. And I was listening to Jazzy M on the radio, and he played Masters at Work, All Right, All Right. And I, I remember vividly being in that room, hearing that, that Todd Terry early record. Like, and I was so... like, what the fuck is this? And then I went down to City, City Sounds Records around the corner, bought it. I mean, it was that time, it was hearing hip-hop, merging to all those transition periods were incredible when you're like 16 17 18 those passion when it all gets like locked in like that at a young age it's like it creates some kind of like nuclear reactor that basically lasts like your lifetime as long as you take care of it you know yeah but but i think being driven by passion is like that's what it's got to be yeah i I feel i feel blessed i'm lucky to continually you know I, i 90% 90% of the time I work on things that I absolutely love doing, you know? I have to, because I can't, I can't drive, I can't drive. And this is why, going back to DJ thing, this is why part of it became a backseat for me, because I, I lost the passion for it, you know? And I just couldn't, I, I, I couldn't do it anymore, really. So the whole lockdown thing for me, like I said, unfortunately, <laughs> it hasn't affected me, because I got out of the, you know, the last gig I played was probably last December or something, and I'm kind of... I, I turned down gigs and I'm kind of happy I don't have to turn down it. You know, I was turning down gigs because I just thought, but, and also I don't get paid shitloads of money, you know, for gigs. So that's the other thing. It's like, I was like, it's not, it's not worth, you know, for, it's just not worth it. So not financially, but I mean, for my state of mind, because it was also like, this guy, it became, you know, it can it, negative, the, the, the effects it can have on you mentally is just, I think it's bad. So. I mean, look, it's, it sounds easy to do it, but just being disciplined and sticking to the maxim that, you know, you do things you care about is crucial like it, it's it's habit forming but it's also difficult for a lot of people to yeah, stick to also, that also i think the thing for me is i don't want to do anything half-heartedly you know i want to put 200 percent into everything i do and i kind of realized a while back to be that dj I, I mean i think i'm capable of being a really fucking good dj right i don't think i'm the best but i know that if i put my heart to it if i was to do it full time i would smash it Right, mm-hmm. but I don't have the dedication, the time, or the passion to do that anymore, and I don't want to do that half-heartedly. I don't want to do that to myself. I don't want to do it to people that pay to see me, or people that accidentally see me because they're paid to see the DJ playing after You know, but um, you know, but but serious. So it's kind of you know that's you know, and I do. I continue because there's probably people listening to it thinking, "You fucker." You know, I all I do is DJ, and I can't even get a bloody gig. But I'm very fortunate and I've made it my mission throughout my life to do various different things because of that very reason to, you know, when you're self-employed, you have to 
keep keep yourself covered you know otherwise you know shit always happens you know i've been through ups and downs in music i've been through ups and downs in design when the house music thing really kicked off like acid house and seven England, like did you ever really go full raver fuck yeah <laughs> mate i was i was older i mean i was pr- all right like describe I, an outfit mate i had a goatee beard Oh. I had an Af- I had an Africa pendant. Okay, okay. I had an Africa. But that, <laughs> I don't know. No, but it was but it was given to me from Africa Baby Band from the Jungle Brothers. Okay, well, so you you win. Story. You win. All right, because I worked with the Jungle Brothers for a bit. But I had an Africa pendant. I had a goatee beard. I had round glasses. I had long. I had a Keith Herring, which I've still got a Keith Herring luminous um, snake T-shirt, tracksuit bottoms, <laughs> and I think I had I think I had like body glove. Um, sneakers or Ooh, something. body was, glove man yeah you don't, i had body gloves I still you don't got hear much about you don't hear much about body glove anymore nope but so i mean i like if you imagine so i'm 18 mm. 87 86 87 i was going clubbing anyway doing these todd terry records i was going to every club that i could have all the big massive raves i was i was i mean i never took well i took ecstasy once right which is mm. mad i was like the only person not on drugs at all these things Right, which is weird, but literally, I was the only person not on drugs. Well, at least you did it once. Uh, it was bad. It was it was shit. <laughs> very good. I was at a boy. I was at a boy's own party, and it was fucking rubbish. And all I remember is trying to get to sleep that night. And I couldn't fucking get to sleep. I had a shit night, bedding or whatever. So yeah, probably. But um, that's like yeah, no, I, that's like the worst like said, acid house story ever. <laughs> I got loads of fucking good ones. No, I mean that, that was, was like, no, I mean that one as the one as the one like pill experience was. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I, I, I've never, I've never really been into drugs at all. Smoking, you know, when you'd make hip, when I was making hip hop, I, I, I was not heavily into smoking weed, but kind of a bit. But I've just never been into. I suppose I'm a control freak. I don't like losing control, possibly. Don't know what it is. Yeah. But um, but yeah, so Acid House, yeah, I was fully part of it. Doing like I said, doing the record sleeves, not DJing as part of it at all. But I was more than happy to be doing record sleeves for Todd Terry, Pow Joey. Um, Oh, I did all the network stuff, all the bleep stuff that started coming out. I did ton, you know, like I said, Jungle Brothers. I mean, I started working with G Street Records, so I was doing stuff for Stereo MCs and Jungle Brothers and stuff. So, you know, I was, I was working in London actively as a young man at a brilliant point of time in London. It was, couldn't have been better. When did you get your first Macintosh computer? I think I had, so I didn't have a Mac Classic. But was it a, a 2CX I think I might have had? And the first, I, the first sleeve I ever did on it was, I think, MC Tunes. The, the only run that bites that thing with 808 State. And I, yeah, so yeah, I had a Mac fairly early. The thing was, at the beginning, they were so expensive. So actually, a lot of those early sleeves I did, like these Todd Terry things, they were all done by hand, made to look like ZX Spectrum video games because it was almost like I was just cussing all those bigger design companies that could afford to have... I mean, the computers then were... But these side texts, I did, I did a sleeve for PM Dawn. For, and I remember I'd done a, we, we spent a fortune doing this sleeve on a computer thing that would take me 10 minutes now. But we spent an absolute fortune on like a Quantel paint box or some old big computer thing. So yeah, I, 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 as soon as they become affordable, I, I, I bought one. Yeah. I hate PM Dawn. Just want to put, put that out there. You, okay, I'll tell you what. Here we go. <laughs> I think... No, no. All right, this is... I never understood music like that. I just... I just it just always... What? Okay, well, first of all, okay, wait, wait, hold on. 
let me yeah. let me backtrack my ignorance one step. First of all, I only really knew Set Adrift on Memory Bliss. Like I don't know the I can't go deep in catalog. I don't know their albums yeah. or anything. But I don't know why. I always found it like too soft. Like I was I was too I don't know, maybe I was too too much like a little kid, you know. I wanted the, What were you listening What were you listening to at that time? Though? What what year is that? It's like 80 88 probably 90 it's probably 90 i think 89 90 i think more into like industrial stuff i would be more into like front 242 and 90 i would have been into like nine inch nails and i don't know why like i i I thought thing i mean mind you i was obsessed with public enemy but everything for me had to have like i don't know maybe i wasn't sophisticated enough it had to have a more it had to have a more overt harder kind of edge to it as soon as things got kind of dreamy or even remotely with chords and jazz and whatever. I don't even know what it was. I just tuned out. For me, they were trying to be pop artists, right? And it's interesting because basically, I've never said this, but I talk about this thing. I mean, so I did all the early PM Dawn stuff, right? And then (laughs) they they were really, Prince B, the guy who, the main guy, uh, he was really rude or something to me and I got really fucked off and then, I didn't get to do the, the album cover or something. So I actually put out a PM Dawn disc record. Oh, okay. There you right? go. So me and you, we... After, after, no, but after working with them, right, I put out a D and the, the lyrics were, that started off with fuck PM Dawn because he's a fat motherfucker. <laughs> right? Literally, right? I didn't do the rapping, but I made the music with some guys because I had a hip-hop label at the time. And I put out this PM Dawn record, this disc record. And so I always lived with the fact thinking, you know what, fuck him. Right? Yeah. But then I got, you, you know Wax Poetics magazine? No. Okay, Wax Poetics is an amazing magazine. They had an interview with his brother and some people about it recently. And it, I saw a completely different light to them. And actually, it made me feel so guilty for putting out that record. Because the story behind them, and actually Prince B himself, he was an incredibly, he was a, a smart guy. When it came to making music and breaks, I mean, they, they were really into their shit. And I didn't really know that at the time. And I feel bad about it. But yeah, people should, if they, if, if they hate PM Dawn, get Wax Perfects and read the interview because he really, he, he had one of the best collection of breaks and records for ages. He'd go to these record marts in New York and hear people couldn't fuck with him. Like Q-Tip, Pete, Rock, Large Professor, they were like, no, Prince B's got the best collection in the world of breaks and stuff. Do you realize how many hundreds of years of interviews you could have done until somebody said they hate PM Dawn and you would have the chance? No, I said... No, but I would have agreed with you. About three months ago, I said, yeah, but actually I read this interview. And it's really sad. I mean, he died. And, and now I kind of, I feel, and I've never said to anyone that I actually did the P&D on disc record, but whatever. It's a world exclusive. There you go. Well, I don't know. Yeah. I find in general, I, I've been doing that my entire life. I, I can be like over opinionated and I'll say, oh, I hate that person. I hate that music. And, but I can completely reverse my opinion. And most of the time when you dig a little deeper, you find out there's, there's an amazing story behind it or the person, you know, usually it's you that's missing something, not the other way around, you know? So, um, well, but I don't know. I think, I think for me, at least that's part of the fun. That's part of the journey is like, you know, you, you got your opinion and you really, you know, you throw it out there it's and, in, then, and then you change your mind. The thing you know? is for me that, so you're saying, so you're into Nine Inch Nails and shit and you wouldn't listen to that. The interesting thing is for me, I've always liked everything, but not everything, but my taste has always been kind of weird mm. because I love Throbbing Gristle and I like Loose Ends. I right? love Throbbing Gristle. I love, I, but I love Soul to Soul 
and I like on you sound. So that's the weird. So I had like my brother, older brother, was really into jazz funk and stuff. So I grew up listening to, you know, Barbara Streisand, Guilty, along with Stevie Wonder and Luther Vandross. Mm. But I was really into this weird industrial music as well. And I'm still, that's my thing. I'm, I, I've kind of, you can't pigeonhole me, mate, when it comes to my music taste. I'm proper broad, you know? That's my thing. I don't know when you started your NTS show, and you're one of the few people I still follow on Twitter. I mean, I, I stopped following. Well, I stopped following all DJs. Anything to do with dance music and DJs, it, it just, it was crushing my soul. Just the level of, just, oh, just too depressing. Hypocrisy. Well, just, just bored. It's boring. Just like this small pawn, just boring, bickering. No, intelli- yeah, yeah. no intelligence, basically. No humor and no intelligence. Anyway, you're one of the few people that survived the great, my culling of everyone. Anyway, Thank and, you. and uh, but one of the things I really like, and when I bumped, I bumped into you a time in London not so long ago. Anyway, you are very enthusiastic about new music. You know, you've obviously like the hunt and the search for new stuff and the, yeah. and the going at it kind of with optimism and, and the excitement of finding new is really like central to your show. And obviously it's made like a real impression. And I can even tell in you, it's made you happy and excited about things. So I kind of look to you as a bit of a guiding light because they're not, that's not something you get from everyone now. Well, that's it really. How you feel about the state of new music? I only saw you a few months ago, man. So I ain't changed my opinion. Was that, a, like, was that only a few months ago? Maybe. No, not, no sorry. It's before <laughs> time was flown. It's probably eight months ago. I think it, no, maybe it was a year because ago. Because I didn't see anybody in April and May. I can yeah, tell fuck, you that. Sorry. Maybe it's a, maybe it's a year. Okay. Um, sorry. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know where but, you um, were in May, but I was. We actually got into a little bit of an argument that day because you were saying how you were finding just more amazing music than ever. And you were just feeling really, 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 really great about things. And, and I was seeing you, you know, you were posting playlists with like 200 tracks I hadn't heard about. And so I was like, wow, you know, and I was saying, yes, I see how there's a lot of good kind of underground stuff, but that I wasn't, Mm. I wasn't finding stuff, I guess, to go back to an earlier point that, that was hitting that intersection between like interesting and yet still, more ambitious maybe is the word that came to mind like yeah no, but I get- and and i guess that was that was the crux of the argument and that's still on my mind is like but i'm open to the fact that i'm missing something or that i'm kind of grasping a little bit no it's it, 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 look the thing is we're in a huge transition phase now right that's going to take some time to come out of we've got a situation where the music industry per se pre-covid is just fucked right hmm. in terms of you have such a ma- like these bands that cut through when we were younger these bands that that that, that get klf aside because they were like okay maybe they're an anomaly but generally a lot of these bands were kind of you know in between experimental and pop and the problem is now the way the industry is set up is just to sell pop 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 records nothing in between everything in between is a failure or underground records you can't survive in between if you now made a record which is like hey i'm making this crossover record which is kind of like avant-garde um but at the same time it's kind of pop guarantee you it won't work because people in the record companies don't know what the fuck to do the record record companies are full of morons Mm. this is it the industry is fucked the major labels are full of muppets (laughs) <laughs> nobody knows what apart from the people at the very top nobody knows what they're doing they're all in it for fucking lifestyle they're all in it for a joke 
I, I have to deal with these people every day. They're morons, most of them. Mm. Few great people, but most of them do not know what to do. So that's the problem. They're not cutting through because they don't know how to deal with that. They know if you've got a pop record, you can put it in the right slots. You get it with these people. If you've got an underground record, it fits on NTS and blah, blah. But you've got something in between. It scares people because there isn't the right place for it. And I think, and I agree, there isn't that kind of thing now. Is that so different than the past? I mean, was there yeah. a place yeah, for it man. before? Of course. Okay, just... Look, I was in Canada. The fact that, you know, Cabaret Voltaire videos were on TV, I guess, says it all, right? Even, I mean... Not even that. I think up to maybe, you know, probably 20, up to about 20 years ago, pre-iTunes and pre-all the the DSP situations, right? I think that things were different and you could sign to a label for a decent amount of money spend your time getting the creative right on something which wasn't a dead cert hit people would take chances and now major labels do not want to take chances anymore right and i think that's what it's got a huge part to do with us i mean i think like purely on a music level there's so much incredibly interesting music i'm more into i want to hear things that are different now i want to try and hear things i haven't heard before and that's what I try to dig out. I, I, I either want to hear things that really touch me in some way. That can be revolting me or exciting me, stimulating me. In, in different, just things that really sound different are what excites me, you know. And, and I think that will give it some time. Those things will start dripping down. And, you know, I think hip-hop, which now is really pop music, right? There are some hip-hop artists which, which I think do absorb elements of more experimental music now you know yeah the time the times that i've felt closest to hearing kind of everything i want in a song have probably been hip-hop tracks like those are the times where where i'll hear i'll hear the kind of weird experimental foundation in a beat but then i'll still and i'll hear the 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 glare the glowing ambition like the, the the audacity of the big yeah. statement and and yeah. it'll also have that third element of like not a hook a, a musical hook but also even kind of an image hook or a and that's yeah, when you yeah, get that whole package but the, but the thing the thing for me is remember now because i'm not i made a conscious effort to kind of stop djing in clubs a while ago and being very select about where i played now i search out music which isn't for the dance floor yeah that's the thing right you're free so from the tyranny of i'm free Complete. That it doesn't have it doesn't have to work. Whereas before, I'd try and fit those things into sets, and not that I'd care about clearing a dance floor because you know what it's like sometimes <laughs> clearing a dance. Floor. No, no, but no joking. Spoken you know, like a, a, a tr- spoken like a true DJ. No, Matt, no, but but this is the thing for me. I think that okay, it's a, a, maybe something going to later as well. But for me, I'm interested in DJing with dynamics, right? Yeah, I want to hear people that take me different places. I've purposely cleared dance floors just to bring it back in to hit them with something when the dance floor is clear and people are a bit confused because those dynamics to me are what make it make a night exciting. The idea of hearing someone playing the same tempo all night, it couldn't be more boring to me. I hate that. So I, I mean clearing a dancer in a positive way, right? Because yeah. those times I do clear a dance, you know, I, I think about, you know, someone I had huge respect for, um, Andrew Weatherall, right? Yeah. He taught me a lot. He, I used to play, I played a few times with him and I'd often play before him. You know, I'd play from maybe 11 till 2, 3. He'd play after me. And 9 out of 10 DJs would just carry on playing the same tempo as me. 
he was like, sod that, I'm going back down to 90 BPM at 2.30 in the morning. Now, to me, I learned so much from that, that confidence to do that, and it worked every single time. That's what it's all about. Yeah, I, it is. So that's, yeah, I agree. And you've got to be brave. It's got to be the it's right re- situation. It takes real confidence. It takes confidence, but it takes... Yeah, it's not arrogance, it's confidence. And actually, I think it's respect, because I think I truly believe now we're at a point anyone can get up and just play music 120 to 130 BPM for two hours. Anybody can do that. And, and I think that... Well, I think that the decision, the, the, it's a perfect metaphor. So when the DJ gets on after and he sticks to that BPM range and he plays, yeah. I think, and that's something we see in all elements of the world right now, it's, it's a conservative move. It's a safety zone. If someone does that to me, you know what I think? You're like, they don't fucking care. I'm like, cunt. <laughs> I'm literally, I literally, I had, you know, sometimes I've played such a great gig and I've got and that last record. And there's which is, the difference between me and you. No, I'm literally like, I played at the, the end of my set. The record is perfect. Like, man, let the record play and fade out. Comes on, same tempo, banging me in some other shit. Mm-hmm. It's like, have some respect and just yeah, have the balls yeah. to stop and start. Don't pick up from what, don't pick up from the heat that I've started or I've created. Let it finish and do your own thing, you know? So, but that's, I don't know where, but anyway. So, but, but that wasn't the question you asked me. You were talking about, we are talking about, we've gone off on something else, but in terms of the new music thing, um, man, there's, there's tons of it. And I think that because again, the thing is, I'm, I'm genuinely more interested in what other people do than what I do myself, truthfully. So my record show, and even when I, my radio show, my DJ, to me, I'm not as important as the music I play. Those records, those artists, be it some part, someone that's never put a record out before, they're more important than me. That's the way I see it. That in and of itself is something that's changed a lot. It's how transparent you are. Yeah. You're not trying, I mean, you're not skill, trying to I mean, dominate I, the situation. No, and I'm not putting myself down because I think putting the records together and telling a story is fundamental to it. But ultimately, I always approach it like, you know, I only play records that I love. Or maybe not love is a strong word, but I really think are really bloody great. And most of the time I play records, I'm like, oh my God, how, I can't do that. I could never make a record as good as that. I spend mm. most of my time DJing, and I'm sure you have that, thinking I could never do anything as good as that. Mm. I like that. I, I, for me, the high, yeah. highest flattery is when I, like, I'm like jealous. I'm a, bit, I'm a bit annoyed and jealous that someone else yeah. thought of something. When, uh, so how much time do you spend daily or weekly just searching for new music? So yeah, my show is fortnightly. And I probably spend two or three days a fortnight solidly searching for music. And that's, albeit now it's more online, but, um, and I'm not a vinyl, you know, if, if I can only get something on vinyl, I get it on vinyl. But if not, if it's an album I like, I'd probably get it on the CD and then everything else I buy digitally. I, I don't, you know. For myself, I've realized that like, you can intellectualize things as much as you want. You could talk about the past, the future, how it's changed, but there's, there's no substitute for just searching for music. When you're searching through stuff, it's kind of always been the same, whether it's like 88 and you're in a record shop or it's online. Yeah. You have to do it. There's no shortcut. When you do it, you usually end up finding some good stuff and you feel excited about the whole enterprise. And when you don't do it, you tend to start moaning about how everything's gone to shit. I, I mean, it, 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 I'm in a, dang, I'm I in speak a dangerous from experience. loop now. No, but I agree. And the thing is, but I'm in a dangerous loop now because I'm so addicted to it. Mm. Like the times I miss a show, if I don't do a show for a month, I go, I listen. The backlog. Honestly, 
I literally listen to every single release. Uh, more and more now, I, if it's got a crap sleeve, I kind of miss it. And I, I've got it down, like in the old days when I used to find breaks. I can normally tell from a good record sleeve whether the record's going to be any good. But generally, I must, you know, I listen to probably in a fortnight, I probably listen to a thousand tracks at least. This isn't even, this is not my promos. This is stuff I buy. That's time you could be spent on the stock market. (laughs) (laughs) Man, if I was in this shit for the money, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing. Trust me. How much do you think a record sleeve still matters? Well, to me, it matters. As I said, because if it's got a shit record sleeve, I would listen to it. I think now, I mean, more and more when I'm designing covers for people, now I have to do a moving version of the cover, which is quite cool. Trust me, you know, I, 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 I've spent enough time focusing and doing things on physical product. I think physical product's very important. But when it comes from a design angle, creating stuff for moving image and creating stuff for digitally is still exciting. Maybe it's not as cool, but it's kind of like... I think people are doing really interesting things digitally now, you know. There's, you know, all this kinetic type shit and everything. It's kind of like there's people doing really exciting stuff visually. You know, so many things going on. I'm generally, I'm excited by this. My biggest issue is there's too much of everything. So I struggle to keep up. And when you've Mm. got that kind of digger's mentality, you want to kind of like keep in touch with everything. It's hard. Yeah, that's, you know what? That's such a good point because I struggle with that too. And it's funny because... I think if you come from the 90s, I mean, let alone forget the 80s, if you come, well, no, but if you come from the 90s, it is, it's really true that it's like somewhere deep in my past was a point where I felt like I kind of knew everything. Now, I know that's ridiculous that I never knew everything, but it was like manageable somehow. And it's, yeah. and it, and definitely, I guess that's what it is. It's a digger's mentality. It's, it's that, it's that idea that, you know, I got, I got all the magazines for the month. I've, I've kind of, I, I'm kind of up to date with everything that's happening. And as that's become uh, impossible, there's an adjustment that you got to make mentally that, that I guess, yeah, it's a challenge. But this is, I mean, I, for, you know, for musically for the NTS show, I tried to keep it fairly broad. Um, I suppose it's kind of focused from the record shops that I buy stuff from, you know, that are fairly select. So I kind of, you know, I'm not going, I'm not buying stuff from iTunes or Beatport. But um, it's 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 hard. But the, I think for me, one of the most important things of being involved in a community, which I am been and I have been for thirty odd years, is to put stuff you take from it, but you put stuff back into it, right? In terms of so you know, when I get sent, okay, so for my show, I actually unless it's someone I know really well, my, I ignore, I'm sorry to say I ignore most of the promos now. I, I, often, I delete every promo immediately. I not every, but I, <laughs> you know, some things I check, but generally, and so I buy music and then for my show, I can only fit 50 tracks into each show maximum. That's quite a lot in two hours. I buy 150 tracks, you know, but I'm like every time, you know, big band camp supports. And I'm like, you know what? This artist gets a euro for that. It's my way of saying thank you. I, that for sure. I also think too, not only is it a thank you, I think there's something important about the intentionality behind buying something. Like I know, 100%. like I, it might sound yeah. old fashioned, but like I know for no, myself, there's something, there's something important about the commitment, even if it's symbolic, there's something important about, I like the feeling super, of, of doing super it. Super symbolic. I, I get, so, you know, maybe it is because we're older and, you know, and, I, and I, I'm, I fully understand a lot of young people. I'm going to be 30 next month. Fuck off, you'll be 30 piss off. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Sorry. Um, it's all right. 
Um, but you know, and I fully understand a lot of younger people believe that you know they don't think they have to, they should pay for things, and it's kind of, and I don't mean that as a dissing way. I, you know, I've spoken to people that believe things should be more open, and you know, I, I mean, I, it's weird because you know we, we've entered this conversation, me talking about how probably people don't like me, but uh, but and how I don't, I, I don't necessarily say the nicest things. But I, I think you've had a bit of a re- renaissance in the in the like <laughs> in the liking you category, and I think oh, you and thanks. I think you've mellowed a little bit. No, no, never. sorry, wrong, no, wrong. No, maybe, but no, but what I was going to say is that <laughs> the one thing that's important to me, I've never like, I've never been embarrassed to go up to someone and say, "Hey, you know what? I heard your record. It's a fucking great record." That ah, and and often and often people are always like, so, well, "What, what, what?" And I'm like, "I love that record," and and they're, and they're really taken aback that someone has just blatantly outwardly said they love something, and I would have thought that should be commonplace. Same, but it's not. same. You know what? Yeah, I've never been shy to tell people when I when I love it, and I, think, I, think I like doing good, yeah. it. It's a nice thing. I think that's good. So beyond the fact about you know, all right, paying for people's music is a good thing, but I really think telling people quite honestly how much you love something and not thinking that person's going to think you're a dick or feeling embarrassed to do it, I think is really super important. Do you also go know? up to people and just be like, "Your record's shit"? <laughs> well. If someone says to me, that's when it gets more. That's when it gets more complicated. Nah, but but this is the thing that you often have people. You know, you get to a certain stage in your career when people badge you with emails saying, "Hey, man, tell me what do you think of this," or or you know, PR people like send you three things saying, "No, really, we really value. We want to know what you think." And then you have to be honest, right? I used to start just ignoring them, and now I'm like, no, I'm just going to tell them straight out. A and R wise, there's, there's definitely an art form to. You know, when you reply to, when you love something, it's easy. You can just, you can just be hundred percent honest and you can share the feeling and it feels amazing, you know, but there's an art but, form but to then, formulating again, those honestly, other answers. Shall I tell you a funny, another funny little ditty, right? Yes. Okay. So Jeff Barrow, right? Porter, Porter said, yeah. We don't get on very well. Oh yeah. I think I've seen, sort of, I've seen some, 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 some silly Twitter some stuff. Bitching. Right? But some, but basically I'll tell you, this is. I'll explain where it's quite an interesting because it relates to what we're talking about. When I very first started Output, I sent out Kieran's first record to a few people. And Jeff and DJ Andy Smith, the guy from Portishead DJ, sent me back a DJ reaction saying, this is utter, complete shit. Why are you sending me this garbage, childish... So they sent me back this reaction, right? Mm. And I was like, this is some guy's first record. And funny enough, it sounds it sounds like the shit beak stuff that Barrow makes now. But it was like a kind of post-rocky kind of record, right? And so I DJed at a party with them a month later. I literally went up to him, stopped his record while he was playing, and said, "Don't you ever fucking say that about one of my artists." <laughs> this is in about nineteen ninety seven. That's that's good label boss, right I walked, there. It, it was a it was it was a big Levi's part. I think it was a huge big part, and I literally walked up. Stops his record and said, don't you dare ever fucking say anything like that about one of my artists again. That's, fan- that's fantastic, label boss. That's that uh, everybody should Man, do. Man, that. that's something we haven't spoken about. Being a label boss, mm-hmm. that's a tough thing, isn't it? Yeah. I, I, on balance, I like it. It's been fun. I, I, you're still, you're still a label, still boss, a label boss. Yeah, I'm still. Lunatic. I know. Well, in its own way, the little story you just said is the best part of being a label boss. It's actually that feeling like, I don't know if it's not, not paternal or whatever, but the idea of finding music and helping people and then kind of being their champion, 
that's what I actually like about it. But let's be honest, I think a lot of people mm. run labels, and I was guilty of it myself. I think you run a label to fill a gap in yourself, right? Mm -hmm. So for me personally, I remember musically I was in a bit of a lost point, and I started output, and all the artists I worked with at the beginning, they filled that creative gap that I didn't have. Yes, that's a, yeah, that's a good point. So they filled that creative gap I, I didn't have, and then you go through the stage of developing and working with them and then you start feeling jealous of them because you're like <laughs> fuck a they're making music much better than me and you know and b they're getting really popular now and then c you get so pissed off you close the record label but that's well, kind I, of, I, I never mean, <laughs> i had a slightly different trajectory <laughs> well a def, well, it's a good, the thing about that it fills a gap is 100% true. Like for me, I started a label because um, I was frustrated. I, I wanted to be a musician and I wasn't. And I was, I don't know if I was scared or lazy or whatever. I was very good on the graphic front and I, it was a way to just get closer to the artists like, and by association, that was the origin of it. And then it goes through, obviously there's some like business phases where you're really into expansion yeah. and blah, blah. And now it's a little bit more pure for me. Now I kind of, I've hit a nice zone. The kind of jealousy when you're jealous that they're making better records than you or whatever, I, that feeling I like. Jealous of people, if they're making great records, I'm totally into. It's the jealousy for the things you don't even really care about that's very unhealthy. If it, if it creeps. What do you mean? Well, you like mean? the, you know, when you're maybe you fully zend out and you're not, you don't deal with it, but you know, those moments of weakness where you're like, you know, why are, why are they playing yeah, X yeah, yeah. festival or whatever? That yeah. That's the bullshit. You know, that's, that's when it's, I love it though. Like, I mean, one of the proudest I've been on turbo is like Gasafelstein, you know, who I just adore. Yeah. I just love him. And he hits all those marks we were talking about for me of the, of the the popularity with the integrity and and, and it's yeah, just yeah, totally. and it's and you're just you're just you're basically just happy to be in but about, yeah, but about, i was gonna say i suppose it depends on where your head state is because if you're in a positive mindset these artists around you lift you up you know you feel proud to be part of it and it, it inspires you but if you're in a downer it can be the worst yeah like most things yeah, yeah. so what we better jump into some music so the premise of the show which is pretty loose at this point it's last party on earth now it's kind of first party on earth, maybe if we ever get a party again. <laughs> um, so the, the idea is, you know, I don't know, a dream party or whatever. So, and I, al I always preface it by saying these are, you know, it's an impossible question to single one out of thousands. But yeah, yeah, yeah. so what is your opening record? Uh, well, it depends if I'm, if I'm doing the warm up or if I'm playing headline, doesn't it? Well, what do you want to do? It's your big, it's your big moment. All right. I want to play all night. Okay, so you're. Right. I don't want to play from. I don't want to play from like eight or six in the morning. I want to play from like eleven because no one's going to get it before eleven. Eleven in the afternoon. Eleven to no, no, no. <laughs> eleven, eleven at night to like four in the morning. I think five, four, five hours is good enough for me. It's like right? all night long set. Trevor Jackson with an asterisk, and then it's like four hours. Yeah, five hours, mate. <laughs> eleven till four in the morning. It's five hours. It's good. It's good. It's fine. Okay, five, but, five so hours. That, but, set. Um, I, I would play something. I would play probably something like King Sunny a day who I love. And I'd start it off kind of like, you know, so I would, like you said, there's millions of records you could pick, but something like Juju, or not Juju, which would make Synchro System by King Sunny a day. Something like that, kind of, because it works, you can play that and then you can kind of start mixing in something a bit stranger or something with more of a, of a beat. But if I'm, if I'm starting at the beginning of the night anyway, 
you know, I can play anything, but I'd, probably something like that I'd play. It would start me off on a good, it would start me off very happy. you're allowed to pick one of your own productions um which one um i'll have to pick make it happen playgroup because mm. if i never make another record again i'd be happy i made that record that's a slamming record it's a great record i love that record this is playgroup make it happen Maybe when did we meet? Two thousand and one, two thousand and two. So how did we meet exactly? <laughs> Do you remember? Uh, no, I, I have. No, okay, I remember being on holiday in Goa. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. This is the Nalaya story at the hotel. Yeah, ah, I was in the yeah, Nalaya yeah, hotel with my girlfriend at the time, and there I am, and I, I go there to get away from everything, and I'm in this little kind of like crazy, you know, the Nalaya's up on this. People don't know it's up on this beautiful hill, kind of bougie, kind of trippy hotel thing yeah and i'm just going to bed and suddenly i hear sunglasses at night coming through my my window and i'm like <laughs> what the fuck i'm in the middle of india who's playing that record i left went to, and then i go out and there's this guy it looks a bit like me with curly hair yeah, my brother does my brother does look a bit like you not anymore he's <laughs> a better looking version of me yeah so i see this and then and it was your brother and i think i don't know if i got chatting to it but something it was weird and then but then how did somehow I, I don't know how I don't know how I don't we know how we actually met I mean I remember quite early on I asked you to remix Chromio Chromio so, so, that, that so you the did the I think you're so gangster you did remix on Turbo which we love music from that time was the production quality like it was clearly a step above what a lot of the other stuff was sonically pro and rich and and thick you. you know yeah i mean we spent a lot of time and money doing it it was like a proper you know i went to olympic studios with spike stent and mixed madonna and bjork it was that era 2000 like late 1990s you could sign to a record company for a decent amount of money and i was like you know what this might be the only record i ever make i'm spending all the money on going in the studio so I didn't make any money out of it, but we spent a fortune. When I actually, I started off with a small little studio, Edwin Collins' studio, but then I took it to him to mix it. Yeah, I mean, I wanted it to sound, I wanted it to sound like all those great records that I was inspired by at the time. But I didn't, for me, it didn't have anything to do with, you know, that's, I, I, got, I really resented being tagged into electro clash <laughs> or whatever, because my music was, it wasn't like that at all. It was like, my music was 
a lot of live instruments. It was a far warmer kind of sound. It wasn't really no that kind of it wasn't electronic. Well, it's funny but, now yeah. when you look back at all the people that got thrown into that and like you know, there's very little connecting most people. I think if anything, the only thing that when you look back, the only thing that really connected everyone was more like the personalities. Like everyone was a little bit of an outsider in their own world. And that's kind of, but obviously, you know, between you and James Murphy and me and Peaches, and I mean, there's not musically, there actually wasn't much similarity. But this is is the interesting thing because that's what was a track for me. Like when I made that Playgroup record, at the time, all the electronic music producers the affectives and the square pushes and people that were being highly respected at the time, they were quite faceless and they had their kind of abstract personality, but I wanted to go out there and be like, hey, I'm making like a crazy pop record. Mm. And same with all of us. Like yeah, yeah, exactly. And yourself. And that was a really interesting time because all the, there were people making electronic or great dance records with personality. It wasn't just up to that point. It was all just thievery house music with just sampled female vocals singing shit. And then up to that point, we kind of flipped it by doing something a bit more creative. And that, to me, was really exciting, you know? It was a combination. We were all a little bit bored and we had all had kind of our youths, all these built up ideas that we hadn't had a chance to all our, you know, we, that's how I felt. I had all these, yeah. everything I had loved up into that point, industrial, rave, hip hop, uh, David Bowie's Mark Almond, all these things swirling around with no outlet because in dance music at that point, it felt very, very, uh, conservative, conservative. And yeah. Just, yeah. So what's peak time record? What's your peak time selection? I mean, it's weird because all the records I'm picking up from the eighties or eighties, nineties, but it, it's that, it's a, uh, what time is love, but the trance version of it, pure trance, which is like, you know, I said, I've never, I, I, I don't take drugs. Right. <laughs> I, I, but I, I, you know, personally, you know, a DJing experience to me, for someone that doesn't, says they don't care about DJing that much, you know, it can really transcend things when you're in that loop, when you, when you, not loop, when you're in that situation in the, and it's just, you're carried up, you know, when you get carried away with it, it really just envelops you, right? I feel like I'm tripping off my nut anyway. And a record like, you know, that, that record, from, I play the whole thing of it. The, you know, the response, the reaction is just kind of like fucking insane, you know? Well, that record, so this is KLF, What Time Is Love, pure trance version or remix. Um, well, that's just like, that's a ridiculously good record. That's in my, that's just, the thing about that record is, first of all, it's 1988. And when you consider what happened after, like people are still making records trying to make records that are kind of trancy or deep or trippy and they're still not as good so it's but that record for me is just on every level it's what i would dream of making because the riff is so good and so poppy and yet in no way does it sacrifice the effect
try it hundreds of times to make What Time Is Love. Like in one form or another, like I'm, I'm chasing. But that particular version, I mean, that particular, I'll be honest, the other versions maybe I don't like as much. That particular version is the one that does it for me. Yeah, it's, but it's incredible, the arrangement, the confidence yeah. in the arrangement. Now we think of it as kind of obvious, but for 88, like just, it's really a template for, for all. But, the thing, but, you, but you've got to also remember culturally at that time. So I probably heard that record for the first time in a field. Oh my God, I'm jealous. I wouldn't I'm have jealous. heard that. There's no way I heard that record in a club. I'm pretty sure I was at Sunrise or Fantate, one of those massive raids. So we spent three hours driving around the M25 trying to get there going in there, more drug dealers than there were dancers, right? I remember specifically, I remember seeing Doug Lazy doing a PA for Let It Roll, and then later on that record coming on, and my best friend Sanjay, who'd probably taken about five E's, was had blood pouring down his mouth from chewing his face with this, <laughs> right? Everyone around me was so fucked. The sun was up, it was probably eight, nine in the morning, and that record. <gasps> Oh you my know, God. I have vivid memories for the rest of my life. You know, it had, a, a, apart from the fact it's obviously an incredible record, but I have really vivid memories of hearing that record. And like I said, I don't think I ever heard it in a club. I think I only ever heard it outdoors. That's incredible. For the big, big, big records, I love thinking of the impact of the first time they really were played in their time. You know, not retroactively not nostalgia not i don't know the first time people heard blue monday you know or or the you know i mean no i think at that time hearing care what time is love hearing jd plastic dreams and hearing josh wink higher state state of consciousness right higher states i remember it was the first time that idea of like a record going truly crazy yeah yeah experience which kind of was the first of the giant roles i guess the first dust brothers record had a little bit of that nah no nah. no I, I i love chemical brothers i was never into dust brothers i was never into that whole i mean that's another conversation but i was never but i'm talking i'm not talking beastie boys dust brothers i'm talking no you're talking about the other one no i'm exactly. talking pre-chemical chemicals yeah yeah i wasn't that whole scene i hated i wasn't into that at all really yeah 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 because it's okay because the thing was for me it was so it's okay these early raves you went to right a lot of the ones I went the smaller things were really you know were that post semi-baleric kind of quite sexy you had really fit girls there right you know I went there to listen to music and check out women right that's why you went so is that so so when went big beat did it go kind of lad vibe oh no no I mean I remember I was gonna say the thing is it's like you know so here we are out in fields everyone's loved up having fun it was pretty it was mixed Mm. it really was probably 50 50 men and women right but then when that whole heavenly social big beat boys own thing it was very it became very laddie Mm. the sleeve I did for Todd Terry Black Riot I kind of did a little comic strip of it. It was when football hooligans turned into e-takers, right? Yeah. You know, when, when, when you were actively going to London clubs and it was like, 
sophisticated in a way, or it was deeply underground and very black. You know, a lot of the warehouse parts I went to were, were mixed, or I was like one of the only white people there sometimes, right? It was a fascinating, really exciting energy. But then, you know, and also the West End, there weren't many people going clubbing. So you'll go to clubs and there was probably a clique of 1,500, not even that, maybe a 1,000 people in the whole of London going to clubs, going to interesting clubs, right? Mm. But then that opened the floodgates. There's this club called The Trip at the Astoria. I remember being there and I was like, that is the death of rave. A lot of people cite it as being the turning point in a positive way. But for me, it was the death of it. It was like 80% men, football hooligans, <laughs> fucked up, just waving their hands in the air whistle, with whistles and smileys on their T-shirts. And that to me wasn't what it was about. I have a question. So in that moment, you're, you're at the field rave, you're out there. Yeah. At any moment were you like, I want to be a, that DJ? Like, No, because I, I, I felt, you know, I was, what, not, I don't know how old I was, 1920. Well, you're born like in 1940, you're born in 41. <laughs> so. Fuck off. No, but I was like a fucking superstar anyway. I was like this kid designing record seats for the best records on the planet. Okay. So you, I didn't want to be you a were DJ. Sorted. I thought I was better. Yeah, yeah. I was cooler than the DJ. I was doing the record seats for the records. I was like the artist. Mm. You know, I was an arrogant little shit when I was a teenager. You don't say. You know, I was. No. But you know, <laughs> I was, but hey, but it was like no, I, I didn't have any dream of being a massive DJ in a club. And also, because I said up to, it was interesting because it was also the turning point when we're talking about Dust Brothers and and Big B. Up to that point. A lot of people didn't care what a DJ looked like, let alone what they said. It was irrelevant. Most of the best clubs I went to, the DJ was up 24 feet above you. You couldn't see him. They were looking down on you. Sometimes and, they were in know, a different I, room. They were like in a... Like a like, almost, no. right? With, with a hole in the wall. So for me, all I cared was... For me, I had heroes that I loved, DJs, but I didn't really care about what they had to... I wasn't interested in their politics. I wasn't interested in their opinions and stuff. I just loved their music. And things changed when the whole acid hat, well, particularly at that point with the trip and all the big DJs came out, it transformed everything. You know, and Chemical Brothers, I love the Chemical Brothers now, but I wasn't into dust. To me, it was, dust, it was like white guys making really shit hip hop. That's literally what it was like. It was because, <laughs> no, no, and I explain why, because when you, at that point when you were making hip hop, you start, and same with some of the early jungle and stuff, right? We were architects of sound to a point we would chop stuff up. We would never use a break. Using a break was for pussies. Mm. You'd want to go in there, you want to chop a kick and a snare, take this from there and make something up. When all those guys started making music, you were like, this is Mickey Mouse shit. Mm. You're just taking a loop from that, but it, it didn't mean anything, you know? It really didn't. To, well, to me, it didn't. Really didn't at all. I yeah. thought it was like Mickey Mouse music. And then in a different way, you know, because it's not like, yeah, when you're talking about shut up and dance records and things like that, which were making loose, but they were raw as fuck and they had attitude. They were incre they're, they're they're incredible. Place. Yeah, I think in defense of the big beat stuff, or at least the good stuff, I mean, I remember when I think what it did. There's not, there's not one good big beat record. There's not one. Well, Maybe one that's actually a really good the, record. Well, the, what is it? 14th Century Sky. The first Dust Brothers record, what I will say is, though, it, it did bring a lot new to the table. I mean, like in the arrangements. No, nothing, no, no it's no, not it true. Bought, bought new. No, I didn't, because it, it brought things new to people that didn't know what was going on. Frankie Bones, all the Bones Breaks records, they just ripped off that stuff. Okay, no, it's not true, because the Bones Breaks records did not have yeah. the same impact. They just didn't, It was whether it was in the production or in the arrangement, like Chemical Brothers records had... Not chem forget, no, not chem we're talking about Dust Brothers. Like I said, Chemical Brothers I was into. We're talking about pre that, we're talking about Dust Brothers and kind of... Yeah. I would take them out of it, because I think, you know... Yeah, I don't know. I, We're talking about, which is the one I'm thinking about? It was on that 14th century sky on the Junior Boys' own. There was one track that was 
I think maybe it sampled this mortal coil. Yeah, I mean, again, all that's, I, I was just... Anyway, But no, but it's interesting. But, but for me, like that, that whole radical point, and I see that as a change. You were also, you were also, that, you were also older. <laughs> uh, no, I just mean, I, I mean, I'm saying this like, okay, forget your age doesn't matter. But yeah, no, 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 no. But I mean that it, it also always depends what you've already gone through. The, the, mere, the, the, the simple fact is, if you're used to, go, okay, I was fortunate enough. I went to the Ku Club. I saw Grace Jones and Imagination play at the Ku Club. Shit. Brian Ferry was there. Fucking Dolph Lundgren, right? Okay, that's. I went to these clubs where all these, you know, uh, uh, you know what? I've only been to Ibiza once, and that was then in like 1986. Right. Yeah. Well, you so you know I've too never much. Been back. If you've seen Grace Jones at the Ku Club, you're not going to be impressed by the propeller heads. And no, but the, but but the thing was, what I mean is, crowd-wise, the clubs, the good clubs I went to were diverse, mm. diverse in age, diverse in gender, diverse in color. Right. That scene was super white. I got it. Got it. It was white. It was laddie. It was beery. Maybe in another country, it had a different attraction. Because you're from London and because everything yeah. was really connected to its actual scene, you yeah. have a different experience. It, I guess because I was a kid in Canada, it was just I the record. You. you know, you're just hearing the record. and Which is a good thing. Which is a good thing. It's like, you know, anyway, I'm, I, I'm definitely not. A, I don't want to be like go on record as some giant defender of Big Beat. That's not, not what I... <laughs> But is this, is, this, is this your new album? <laughs> this is all getting edited out. I will say it's, one it's thing. Mark, no, you're not. It's Mark James A&R in it for you. Jesus. I will say one thing, though, that the let's keep Dust Brothers out of it. But when it goes into the Big Beat Boutique and the genre, then I can completely see what you're saying of it being a kind of white bread version of what it was right. stealing from. I mean, uh, do, you want to, do you want to know something weird? Yes. I only heard Primer Scream, Scream of Delica about two years ago. Okay. There you go. Here we got because, something to talk about. No, because I explain why. Because same thing. I was a little hip hop snob. Okay. So that age, when you're used to going to these best clubs, hearing these great hip hop records, perfect house records, why do I want, why I want to hear these greasy indie kids <laughs> trying to make a fucking house record? That's how I felt. I mean, admittedly, I was pretty wrong. Yeah. But all that that whole thing, it was like. Pop will eat itself. Ned's atomic dustbin. Oh, I love Pop, pop will eat itself. Fuck off. Oh, okay, shit. okay, hold on. We got two different things to talk about. Okay, hold on. Okay. First of all, I love Pop will eat itself, but I go, I say that full well, knowing they're quite embarrassing. I can completely see why other people don't and. That's like kind of a more particular thing. Mm. Not to mention that was my introduction to Designers Republic. So you got to give Fair him, enough. you got to give him something there. But uh, what's interesting about the Primal Scream thing is this is interesting just in terms of how people fall in love with music and sometimes having no context is so important. So for me, I was Primal uh, Screamadelica for me is like my first ecstasy record. It just happened okay. to coincide with first time going to raves and first time discovering yeah, yeah. all that and every night listening to that record. And something like Higher Than the Sun, at the time when I was whatever I was, 18 or something or 17, I mean, that was ground zero in terms of a druggy, yeah. chill out anthem. Now, obviously now I see it as a bit like, okay, it's like, a, you know, it's, I mean, <laughs> no, no, I, I, no, I think, no, I mean, the thing is for me, like, I just think it's purely when you're, you know, indie music to me was just a dirty word then. I was not interested in indie music. 
that's guitars. Oh fuck, I hated guitars. I hate I guitars. You know, I was, I was in, I was into drum machines and keyboards. I didn't want to hear, you know, and it was probably wrong. And I admit, and I hear, listen to it now, I think, yeah, it's got Jar Wobble on it. It's a great record. But at the time, doesn't it get a know, pass? It gets a pass. No, I, I, you know, but the thing is, I don't. I'm not saying I don't like it. I'm saying at the time I ignored it. I wasn't interested. It was completely out of my radar. That whole thing, and and so you know, I lumped, and it was probably very wrong of me, but I lumped that whole scene. Heavenly, Junior Boys, Big Beat, Primal Scream, India. I, I saw it as a part of the same thing, something that really I, I wasn't interested in, which was ignorant of me. I admit it, you know, but like, but I like goth, like I love the cult. I, I love, love the cult. The cult, I mean, she, the, she's like, she's so she's sanctuary. sanctuary in the rain. Oh my God. Amazing records. But that's a different, you know, and I used to, mate, I used to go and see Zodiac Mind Warp. So, you know, so so for me, I was going to go and see, I was seeing the cult. I was going to see Zodiac Mind what we used to play with like 200 Marshall amp stat speakers behind him, hard as fuck. And that to me, I was like, this is great. I don't want to hear this other weak indie shit. That's how this out She Saw Sanctuary is a, it's a massive record. It's a, it's an incredible, and the long intro, that was my, uh, at school dances, that was like my one moment of the year to shine. Not, I'm not saying I was some incredible. <laughs> it's, I'm not I'd love saying, to see photos of you back then. really young when you're like 13 14 and you like yeah. you know you got nothing like you don't know anything i and that was like my song when i had nothing else i was a nobody but i had that song but then electric that rick rubin did was great as well yeah i only found out recently that he produced the cult yeah, yeah that's the first album he ever produced electric's quite good art quite good artwork too with the runes rick and griffin rick griffin did that yeah what is a secret record that you've been saving I didn't quite understand the question, you see. Originally, when I formulated the question was, it was really more about the idea, do you hide your records? You obviously don't. You have a radio show and you're not into... It was more like... I do hide. I do hide. I oh, mean, you do? Okay. When something, yeah, sometimes I hide. Yeah, certainly do. I'm not... You know, okay, so the thing is, I, I do a few... Like, I, I do like guest mix or spotlight mixes on NTS. I do like an Arthur Baker one. And, you know, I didn't put a track listing on it at all. I did this Island Records, like, four-hour mix. I didn't put any track listing on it because... I used to have to dig back in the day, and that's part of the, the you know that's part of the adventure, isn't it? It's a record that you'd be kind of pissed off if you just saw someone else play it. You'd be like, "Oh fuck, that was my record." You know, I was I was saving that one. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's yeah. I've got well, it's yeah. The, this Godly and Cream Marciano record, which is a I mean, it's nineteen eighty. I can't work out if they ripped off Yellow or Yellow ripped off them because it sounds a lot like Yellow. And I've got a weird not rip off, but I'd be really surprised if Boris Boris Blank and Dieter Meyer didn't hear that record and were a bit inspired by it because. It's incredibly mad record for 1980. Yeah, I, I had never heard it before. I listened to it when you sent me a list. It's, it's mad, right? Yeah, it's crazy.
Bradley and Cream, all I know about them was I was a kid and every week there'd be a little music video show. I'd, I'd tape it, the Betamax on Friday nights and Saturday I'd watch. And then one day this video comes on, that song Cry with these faces yeah. kind of morphing into each other. So I was like everybody, I was like, holy shit, how do they do that? Like, blah, blah, blah. But at the same time, I was like, why are these old people on TV? <laughs> It drove me nuts. I was like, they don't look good. They're not like Duran Duran. Like what, why is, what's happening here? What's the story behind God? The, the deal, the deal is, like, I mean, <laughs> okay, I mean, for me, they're the unsung creative, UK creative like masters, right? Okay. They, they were members of 10CC, right? Okay. So, that, so they, you know, they wrote and produced I'm Not In Love. They were in 10CC for years, and then they broke off from 10CC, and they started making their own records. And they made loads... I mean, they had an incredible studio with loads of fair lights and crazy synths and drum machines. And they made a bunch of solo records themselves, which are just amazing. They're, at the bit like, you know, they're like angsty Jewish guys. Okay. So it's kind of, it's kind of listening to... A bit like Steely Dan, but more exper- experimental oh, version of Steely Dan. God, I hate Steely Dan. No, well, you, anyway. Um, Do you love Steely Dan? No, I don't love them. I, I, I wouldn't. No, I don't love them. But I, I, I love the Donald Fagan Nightfly album. That's that's my my Stevie Dan record. Maybe I don't know. I should probably. I don't know. I've tried. But sorry. But so they made all these records, but they also made videos, and they were kind of like they did. They did videos for every every Duran Duran, all the best artists in the eighties. So they were incredible video directors and video artists as well. They released like a. They were one of the first people to do like a video experimental video album and stuff okay they were really mind-blowing i mean they, they did the video for yes owner of a lonely heart they did tons of great stuff so it's really worth if people don't know much about them it's worth i mean all their albums are up on spotify you can hear them all but they're very very good so you just can't get enough of trevor jackson 70 minutes that's not enough 80 minutes no that's not enough you want more well this is how you get more you go to patreon.com slash Tiga. You sign up and become a member of Club Sexor. That is my membership members only group. And then you get the rest of this podcast. I'm not even going to tell you how long it goes on. It could be hours, but trust me, you don't want to miss it. He has so many amazing tracks coming up. Oof. Wait a second. Wait a second. Last minute change. Um, I just got a phone call. Um, I just spoke to my team and the rest of this episode is free 100% free it's a gift from Trevor Jackson in future yes sign up for my Patreon but for now just luxuriate in the generosity of Trevor Jackson and me so what is your closing record and that's a tough one I understand my closing record will be the Blue Nile Tinseltown in the Rain I had never heard this record. What? I had never heard this record. What did you think? Um, not your thing? No, it's too musical for you. Yeah, too musical, not my thing. But I, but I like, I mean, I kind of liked it. Why did we ever come so far?
the choice. I thought. Mate, be honest. It don't hold back. If it's not no, your no, thing, I'm, it's not your thing. I mean, no, no. Musically, it's not. Musically, it's not. We're talking about. We're talking about if, if this is the last gig I'm ever going to play, and the world's going to blow up the next day, I'll play that record. It's like I think musically yeah. not my thing, but that's not what matters. As a choice, I think it's incredible. It's such a. There's so much romance in the fact that that's your decision. I think ultimately, you know, I could have picked records that are new records for all these things, right? But I think ultimately, I come back to the thing. If it's a you know, it's the last pie on earth. I'd probably be playing to, you know, a lot of people that never heard it before. But I think that's the thing as well about being a good DJ. You should be able to put records, different records, in a context where they wouldn't normally work. You know, I think that's the exciting thing about being able to play and put. You know, to me, it's like I grew up being a designer and using collage. And to me, when DJing works properly, it's like collaging records together. You know. Mm. Sounds really wanky. That no, no. I think that, you know, but for, 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 for me it does. And, and, and like, if I, you know, all right, I've picked like three or four, or how many records are there that are old records, but probably 75% of it would be brand new music, you know. But um, that, that record particularly is the kind of thing that I wish I could make. I mean, maybe hopefully I will one day be able to make really emotive records, you know, that um, because I've always been interested in sonics and, and making people move, you know. But... So I'm envious of people like that that can write really beautiful music. Yeah, me too. It's a very cinematic record. It's like very. Totally. Uh, you should listen to. You should listen to. It. I mean, there are all their albums. There's an album called um, Hats, which is the one afterwards, which is really stunning record. Maybe too nice for you. I don't know. <laughs> I'm going to. No, I will. Anyway, I'm. 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 I'm growing. I'm growing up slowly. Yeah. Do you have a favorite DJ? Favorite DJ. Yeah got so many man oh this is about what my after party question okay this is your after is party different no no this is your after party this is you you get to it's your after party who plays okay my after party how many people can i have playing how long does the party go on for i don't know can you just pick two no no i pick four three pick four. three think, no man it's got to be, all, right, all right okay what well, i would say um atta a four atta has to be one of them so, so, okay, so I've just played this long, I played a four, five, five hour set. My perfect club is probably two, three hundred people. Okay. Really, really dark, just dry ice, strobe light, and maybe a red light, right? Like plastic people used to be, something like that. So that's my ideal club, maybe a bit bigger than plastic people. I've just played a four, five hour set. I'm like, okay, let's do the after party. I think we're going to go, it's a heat, it's a height of the summer, we're outdoors, right? So it's going to be in a forest or some shit somewhere, right? And I think I would have, the first person I would have play would probably be Theo Parrish. Okay. So Theo has to, it'd be Theo Parrish, Kieran Hebden and Atta. They would be my three DJs, I think. And may, maybe maybe Chloe as well. Oh, I love Chloe. Chloe is one of my favourite DJs. But um, I think she's fucking great. She's so, great. So Theo, Theo undoubtedly, because he's one of the best DJs I've ever seen. I've never, heard, I've, never heard, I've never heard him play. Oh, mate. I know. I used to see, he, I used to see him play at Plastic People and he'd just like be playing the nastiest, gnarly, like um, James T. Cotton track or mm. something like that. And then, he, then he'd put it into like Earth, Wind and Fire. Wow. And then he'd play, he, like he, the guy, I, I don't know, the guy, you feels his music. So him 100%. Kieran, because I just think is is. You know, I'm pr so proud of him. 
You know, literally yeah. every time I see him, just I'm super, super proud of everything he's done. There you go. That's and the that's the label feeling. What? That's yeah, well, it's, that's more of a you know, I, we're not like best best buddies, but as a, you know, and the, the truth, yeah, I mean, it's kind of like, but I've you know, from getting his first tape in my hand to seeing him achieve what is achieved with, without really compromising at all. No, that's the beauty of it. No, no, that's what's great. You know, he's he's done his thing. So, and he's still a great DJ. So. Him and then and Atta, because I'm sure there's going to be some people there taking drugs, and Atta knows how to completely flip people out of their heads in a really interesting way that I don't know many other DJs. No, he's amazing. God, you know what? When I hear you talk about it, like, I guess I kind of miss parties. <laughs> I miss good. I miss good. I, I miss I good parties. You I, know? I didn't miss it for a long time, and I thought. Um, I thought I was kind of like over it in a weird way, but I miss it. I think the thing is, it's like just when you just described the Theo Parrish thing, the going from a James T. Cotton track to an Earth, Wind & Fire, maybe it's the circles I was traveling in or what I was doing or whatever, but you sometimes you get further and further away from that, from that beautiful can, can collision can of right. things, you know? This is a point, I'll be brutally honest with you. Yeah. Right? And I'll explain to you how you play a role in, and don't tell it's the wrong way. In the, you play a role in the destruction in, of the culture of my DJ career. If I'm okay, so this is let me when hear I first it. Let like, No, this and this is and this is it's, it's a positive thing. It's not, but it's interesting because I think that when I first started playing, I used to just play weird ass records, right? Mm-hmm. And strange things, hip hop. But then I got into weird records, and then when I, you know, when I started to hang out with you guys and James Murphy and too many DJs and yourself and play gigs with you lot. I realized that your agenda was very different to mine. Not better or worse, but just very different to mine. And it, honestly, it made me feel uncomfortable. It made, when I be, you know, I played some amazing parties with you guys. I remember playing like Nitzer and Sonar and stuff like that. But I never in my heart of hearts really, I enjoyed the thrill of it, but I did, I felt out of place. Mm. Whereas you think about Dave and Steph playing every single night to 10, 20,000 people, they love it. Or yeah. they might not love it, but they, they do it, right? I felt uncomfortable with it all the time. I used to get blind drunk. You know, don't drink it. The only way I could DJ, like half a bottle of Absolute and then go on stage and play and do my thing. But that was a point. I finally, I kind of realized myself, this ain't my thing. This is not what I'm made. It's not what I'm made to do. I'm not. What was it that made you feel that way? Having to, having, I think playing to big audiences and having to play the hits, not the not cheesy records, but just, I think, Playing the, the limitations of, you know, of records that had to perform, or yeah, because bigger gigs you can't play records with subtlety, right? Mm. It's hard. It's really hard unless you've got an amazing sound system, right? Nine times out of ten, you haven't. And you know, and I think honestly, I don't like playing on a stage. I like playing in a crowd. You know, I like those clubs where you're down in the crowd, right? And you can actually feel not the monitors, you feel the music from the system. And all that kind of thing. And I started to feel that I was getting, moving further. It was fun. and I was well paid and everything. But I felt like that time, even though it was really a brilliant time with all of us and we had fun, I think that point was a turning point. I thought, you know what? I don't feel comfortable and I've got to try and get back. And this is why what I do with NTS and not on the dance floor, that's more me. Hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, of course, 100%. You get it. It's not a negative thing at all because it's like I had so much respect for all of you. And it was amazing, and I loved playing with you lot, and we had such a good time. But I just felt 
I was terrified my first mm. times I played those gigs. I know. I, I don't know how you do. You I know. understand a hundred percent what you're saying. I mean, I I felt, I felt my. No, own. you're never. Mate, you're a pro. All you guys, I, 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 all the time, I'd be in the dressing room shitting myself, thinking this is fucking scary. And you guys would be like, so because you did it more, <laughs> maybe because I did. No, but literally, I'd be like, I remember. But, but saying that, I remember playing with James at doing Sonar, like Sonar by Night, when it was in the old space, and there was that space which was probably what fuck, twenty, thirty thousand people. He was terrified, I remember. Mm. That was like one of the first big gigs he ever did. But then Dave and Steph came on and just put on a like, they were like Yeah, well, Dave, and, Dave and Steph was tough. It was tough to play after them. No one can play after Dave and Steph, right? No. <laughs> <That's> the- <laughs> <laughs> just to tie it back to the records and what you look for in an actual record. For me, yeah. there was a period for, for years and years and years, I felt very good about getting up there in front of 20,000 people for the reason because I felt I had the right records. And the yeah. rec- what I mean by that is I had records that they, they ticked the boxes where I felt I loved them. Like I thought they were good records and they were also, they did what needed to be done in a way. But yeah, that, yeah. and the, the epitome, like the peak of that is probably like a, a Vitalik record or something, you know, like yeah, yeah, something where it's like, it's kind of ticking all the boxes, but that started to fade and for me, when I was having more and more trouble finding those records that I thought were interesting, then I also started to feel less and less comfortable in those environments. Well, that was a long time ago, then, man. Right? Yeah, it's already a long time ago. No, but, mm. yeah, but then, but then the thing is, but then the, you make music, make your own music. You've been touring, you perform. I mean, don't want to blow smoke up your ass, but probably probably eighty nine percent of your records are bangers, right? Mm, yeah. So you've got a, you've got a catalog. You're not going to say, yeah, that's the point. You turn around and say, Trev, thank you very much. Jesus, <laughs> man, come on. <laughs> You, but you know, I'm I can't honest. believe that. I told you I'm honest. I don't, I'm <laughs> um, so honest. You know, I can't. I can't even be bothered to say thank you. I'm just like, yeah. <laughs> but I, you know, but I think about you know, you play pleasure for the bass and all that. It's, those records still sound amazing. You've got that catalogue of records. If in doubt, you can play your own music, right? Yeah. It's um, you know, I, I think. That, thank you. Uh, so that's better. <laughs> don't edit that bit out before. Um, but I think, yes, but thank what you. I, what. <laughs> But what, what I actually think is interesting, though, that point when st- things started to turn minimal, right? Mm. And that, when minimal techno kind of started and that kind of happening, I was like, what is this shit? But then I remember going to see Ricardo at Fabric and was like, this is some fucking avant-garde, yes. crazy-ass yes. shit. Yeah. Here's this guy who, I mean, I should have had Ricardo play in my, in my after party, right? Here's this man. He's like an ECM Records nerd, knows his shit, smart as hell, playing these super, super trippy avant-garde records to the general public who are lapping it up. Yeah. And I, I found it revelationary. I was like, this is promising because this is a group of people, this is a huge audience of people listening to super, super weird records. Yeah. And I thought, you know, it's very different, not anthems, not, you know, works in a different way. But I kind of tried to... I actually, in a weird way, relate. I think I embraced that. Not that I became a minimal artist, so I started playing a lot of that music. But I had respect for it, you know. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, look, I think especially, you know, if you leave the too many DJs party, where where yeah. records are, it's so maximal. You know, everything is yeah. so. From that, the contrast is is massive. I mean, I always thought what was so nice is like certain DJs who could make a B side track 
sound like a bomb, you know, like the ones somehow that, that strange, weird record that you're not even sure you can play. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and it's the hit of the night is the, is, is really kind of the Holy grail in a way. If I, you get a special VIP ticket and you can invite anyone in the world to your party and they show up. What do you mean? And they, but it's not up to me if they show up, right? No, no, they're going to show, they show up. Like they're going to be there. Well, like, so I've, I've got, I've got to pick someone that would actually show up. No, 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 you, Whoever you pick, they will show up. They are forced to show Can up. Can I pick? Oh, I've got, there's two people, right? But for different reasons. Okay. Okay. So Larry David has to come. <laughs> I just want Larry to turn up. He, he would hate the music, but just to, to give Larry a high five, he's got, okay. to be with, he's got to be there with Leon. They've both got to turn up, okay. high five, and then they, I can see them. They look at each other, they go, what the hell is this? We're leaving, right? Okay. So that, that, that's one, well, one and a half people. And then David Lynch, who I think would love it. Ooh, I'd love to invite David Lynch. In. Can you imagine? I just play some mad ass shit to David Lynch, and I reckon he won't be dancing, but he'd be sitting there and he'd be going, "This is I'm quite into this shit." I love so David Lynch. Larry David and David Lynch. That's Those are bad, good right? ones. I love David Lynch. I always, uh, I wish I spoke like David Lynch. <laughs> I really do. You I wish you lo- spoke. His voice. Yeah, He's got that midwestern. Your voice couldn't be further from David I know. Lynch's voice. I know. I Your know. voice has never changed. Your voice hasn't even broken, man. My voice is, I don't know, my voice is okay. It's like a neutral. But no, I wish, I, I love, he's got that that Midwestern drawl, kind of like slow and silky. If I'm really honest, I'm more impressed with his work than his voice, but I get what you're no, saying. No, no, his voice, yeah, I, yeah, his work's great, but did you read that? Yeah, read I, wish his, I, had, I wish I had his haircut. That too. Did you, read hair, the big, did you read that Big Fish book? No. Meditation no, no. book. It's quite good. It's really good. No, have I, you ever? I started do you ever doing, meditate? I started, do, I, I started doing TM <laughs> because of him. Oh, you, do you have a mantra and everything? Yeah. You're not allowed to say yeah. it, right? <laughs> no, no. But I started doing TM because of him. Literally, I saw I saw him do a talk, and he was talking about, it and I was like, you know what? Fuck this! I'm going to try it. And okay. It's amazing. How long have you been doing it? Mm, over ten years. Oh wow! Not as regularly as I should. And it's once a day, twice a day. No, I, okay, you're meant to do it twice a day. Yeah, you do it once every um, four days. You, <laughs> no, but if you don't do it, you don't punish yourself. So the weird thing is, ah. I should really be doing When I'm stressed out and I've got to, I should do it, but they're the times I, I just don't get around to doing it. And it's been the mad year, you know, the past, whatever. But I still do it regularly, and it's, I, it's, it's amazing. I would highly recommend it to anyone that wants to be... I, okay, I can just sum it up in terms of when I used to try and work creatively, right? Mm-hmm. I would sit down with a pen, you know, old school pen and paper on my computer, sit there struggling for ideas. Since I've done TM, I just go for a walk, ideas just pop in my head. It's more free-flowing. The, the ideas just, just kind of, I don't think about it, they just flow. Which sounds wanky, but it's really true. I read the book about creativity, and I think it's called Catching the Big Fish. And yeah. it, it led me to consider TM, not to actually see, do I, it. I would, uh, I would highly consider it. It's... Um, to, for your creative process, it's very good. I did some meditation last year. I did it for almost a year every day. And then I just dropped it. Did it help? I don't know. It's a tricky, it's a complicated thing. I, I'm 100% for meditation. I think it's amazing. Yeah. I'm not skeptic. I think it's incredible. I think if every kid learned meditation at school, like everyone should just have it as a, as a base skill. For me personally, I don't know. I think it's... A... No, yeah, I, I, it, that, but, but it depends on meditation you do. But I with TM, it's kind of like... You know, punish yourself over it. And the thing is, when you do it with other people, you can't now, but it's, it's powerful. It's crazy. You really, really like, yeah, I can't explain, but, well, I can explain, but it's, it's, 
yeah, it's a positive thing to do. But we can't end the conversation on this. I sound like a hippie. Okay, what about yoga? I did, I did yoga for a while. <laughs> but you know what I bought myself recently? I bought myself a massage chair. It's much better. Well, like the kind, like from the airports, like those, like a... No, it's like a portable one. It's a small thing. You put it on your sofa, sit on it for 15 minutes. It gives you a shiatsu. It's mind blowing. (laughs) Get it. It's like a hundred bucks from Amazon or something. I'm not going to get it. It's amazing. I've had a bad back and I use that. I was trying to do my, I mean, I do my stretching every morning anyway, not yoga, but just getting old, you've got to look after yourself. But I've got a a, a mate. It's amazing. Sit there. We fight over it at night. Who's going to watch the TV with the mattress, with the um, massage chair? Just buy another one. great. Buy a, sec- lockdown, buy a second one. I'm, I'm not doing that. You like being on Twitter, right? Do I like being on Twitter? Mm. Um, I, I, during lockdown, I've been on social media far too much. Even though I've been busy, because of that lack of connection, seeing friends, meeting people, I think I'm, I'm on it. I mean, I, 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 do I like... It, it, I go through ups and downs mm. with it, but it's kind of... I, I, I suppose I do sometimes. I mean, it, going back to the first conversation we had almost like, you know, I used to sit there arguing and debating stuff with my mum and dad, well, not my mum, but with my dad and my brothers and stuff. And it's the same thing. Twitter to me is just like a debate. I just wish you could probably tweet a few more, you know, characters. But yeah, I, you're, you're, not, you're not into it, are you? Depends. I, I, I loved Twitter at the beginning. There were years I really, really loved it. Like I loved it basically just for making jokes you know it was it was really as simple yeah. as if you're i were a funny f- guy thank you thank you trevor <laughs> that thank fine that, that was, was just a test that was a fucking <laughs> test <laughs> i had a i had a yeah right there ready but i went thank you no i used to it was pretty simple so if i was with my friends they would hear the joke if there were no friends near me i would tweet it so if i was yeah. in an airport i would just you know and i saw something funny i would i would tweet what i thought um i really really loved it for that and I don't know what it is. I, I've 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 gotten pretty turned off the whole thing just lately. Just just personally, I just find it, it like it leaves me with a faint feeling of anxiety. But I have to admit, sometimes it's a lot of fun. I mean, you know, when you when you get on a little roll and and you're, it does feel good. You know, you know, the best thing about it for me is to be in contact with people that like some of my heroes. That's the thing, if I'm honest with you. And when someone you really really like, like you know, I was. Well, you know, like Chris and Cozy, for instance, Cozy's mm. on there. I've met her a few times, lovely woman, and she just like retweet. I'm like, yeah, that's true. Mental. That's if true. You t- yeah. If you told me when I was a kid that would happen, it I would know. blow my mind. I so know. to be, you know, that, that's the thing for me with social media to be able to actually just be able to converse with people that because some people, you know, some people are acting. You know, you, you have people that are like amazing that actively. I mean, the Matt, that, that Wiley thing, right? That mm. was the thing. Wiley posted um, some, not Etta James, I can't remember, oh, who did he posted? Um, oh, someone, and anyway, it was written by a Jewish person. So I put up saying, yeah, well, funny that, because it's written by a Jew. <laughs> and then Sarah Silverman retweeted it. Oh, shit, that's I, good. I was like, what huh? the fuck? But then I had all these right-wing nutters coming at me. Mm. So I had to take the message down. Yeah. It is, you know, so I, no, for know. meeting for, for, yeah, that is, that's the best part. And actually, look, I mean, I, I, I tend to, I can, I bitch a little bit about the whole thing. And at the same time, you know, it's probably how I met like 30% of my friends and, and how you set up collaborations and, you know, how quickly. I don't, you're good at that. I don't do any of that shit, man. I, you, you, okay. You know, I know the truth. I don't think I'm, you know, we know each other, we're friends, but we don't hang out socially because you live in a different country. And probably if you did live in London, I would hang out with you. Yeah. Um, you want to say thank you again? It doesn't matter. Um, <laughs> but, um, that one wasn't even close to a thank you. Being f- okay, fine. No, it wasn't. Um, 
But I was going to say, I don't ha- none of my friends are musicians. I don't hang out with musicians. Straight up. Musicians or DJs, I really don't have many friends. that I mean, All my friends do normal, ordinary things. I've never hung out socially with people in my own industry. Hmm. Be it designers or... It's not my thing. That's also the traveling thing. Like, I think when you're, when you, yeah. if you spent 20 yeah, years yeah. traveling, you just inevitably, like your friends end up the other guys and people on the circuit. Trev, uh, we've been talking for about seven hours. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure to wrap things up. What are your current production plans? What are you working on? Uh, I, I won't divulge what I'm working on, but I've, I've got two very distinctly different projects. One of them is potentially a playgroup project. So, as I said, all the, I've got the ideas for most of the things I'm going to do. I've just got to find a way to get them out. And, and yeah, well, I mean, the thing, the, 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 the thing was, when I put out that playgroup record, I, was, like, I didn't want to play live. And I, you know, that actually made, I had to DJ. I started DJing professionally because of that, you know. And the only thing is, now, but I suppose now, I don't know, it, it's, if I just didn't have any expectations of it and just did it, and I try and do it quick. I mean, the, the place I really want to get to now, if I'm really honest, is like, you know, the past five, six years, I've been f- finished and got out all this old music. And now the slate's clean, inspired by the way Kieran does it, I really want to just make a track and just put the thing out. Yeah. No fucking around. Just make the track, get it mastered, and then put it on Bandcamp and get it, get it out on all the, you know, all the stores a week, two weeks later. To be able to be in that position and for me to maybe... This is different than a playgroup project, which has to be considered. But to be in a place where I can just make music expressively and just communicate with people really directly and quickly, I think I've got, I definitely want to be less precious about, you know, I've been so precious about everything I've done for so long. I think now, for many, many reasons and what's going on in the world, I don't think there's any point being precious anymore. I agree 100%. And that is a nice way to end because that's Perfect. a little that's a that, chat, mate. and that's a little silver lining that that the end of the preciousness you know lovely last